0: as alaikum all, welcome to another episode of In Conversation, brought to you in co- association with the Reorient Journal, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. So the temperature still seems to be quite low uh, in the global north. We had a bit of a spike uh, over a couple of days, but it's just gone back down. So I hope all my fellow northerners are keeping warm at uh, this time of the year. And speaking this time of year, we seem to be quickly approaching the end of the year and what a year it has been. We've had both good and bad, and, inshallah, I hope the good carries on and the bad ceases. So, today's episode marks the end of Season 8, with Season 9 hopefully starting in the new year. Um, I would like to thank all of our listeners, both old and new, for your support, not just in this year, but throughout the lifetime of Network Reorient. I'd also like to thank our contributors, as well as our hosts this season, uh, Sherlock Khan, Aisha Khan, Ismail Patel, and Haroon Bashir. I would also like to thank uh, our sound engineer editor, Zubair Vakil, for another season of stellar work. Um, the future for the network looks promising and exciting, and it's to this future now that I want to uh, turn. We're actually currently in the midst of an overhauling of the in conversation segment of the uh, network, and that may mean Uh, a few changes around here um, including a new name for season 9 so of course watch out for that inshallah Um, we hope that these changes will reflect how far we've come since our early days in 2014 so we're almost at the uh, uh, centenary, we're almost at the uh, decade, uh, inshallah centenary if we get there Um, we're almost at the decade point of um, decade anniversary of the network so our episode today actually harks back to the early days of this uh, network as it's a conversation between myself and Professor Salman Said. So in this episode we talk about the divine, texts both primary and secondary and power all within the rubric of Islam and the Islamicate. Let's listen in. As-salamu alaikum all. Uh, welcome to this uh, next episode of In Conversation. Today we have with us Professor Salman Said, and we'll be going through a few interesting points regarding critical Muslim studies and its relationship with various um, aspects of the Islamic Hate. So, Professor Said, um, I think my first question is related to those texts that we call the primary texts of Islam. So basically this is the Quran, this is the Sunnah. Um, I want to ask you, what does critical Muslim studies understand, or how does critical Muslim studies understand um, these primary texts and their role in, I guess, creating Muslimness? This would be the first kind of question I have. I think the
1: question would be really... um what is the relationship between not just the primary text, but what we now retrospectively call Islam, and what we think of Muslims? So, in a way, Muslimness is really a kind of looking at the process how Muslims become Muslims, of what is it that what attributes um, make them so? Um, and the question of the primary text is twofold. One, there is a, you know, clarity that the text, the primary text par excellence is the Quran itself. Mm. And then there's, of course, a certain amount of uh, disagreement and dispute about what should be included within the next tier, Mm. in a way. Um, And that, you know, that changes over time, that's part of the tradition. But what is the primary text for? So in a way, one thing the primary text does is of course, it con- it actually constructs the Muslim subject position, as we call it now, mm-hmm. yeah. And so what would it, how could one be a Muslim without the Quran, there are two possibilities if you imagine a world in which all the copies of the Qur'an were destroyed, you would still have those who memorise the Qur'an, right? Mm -hmm. This is not up there. Could you have Islam without the Qur'an, without knowledge of the Qur'an? And I think the argument would be that that really becomes virtually impossible to the extent that once the Prophet is no longer present, um, our ability to understand is limited. So if the Quran was to disappear, you would have to then fall back on other elements of this, uh, uh, you know, more strongly on the sunnah other practices, etc. So these are kind of very technical questions around the primary text and its relationship. I think the more um, banal, but perhaps more um, more usual way of thinking about it, is really in terms of what interpretive bridge lies between the primary texts, and here I'm using the plural rather than that, and conduct and behaviour, etc., to determine what constitutes a Muslim. Hmm. And that, I think, ultimately, when you put it like that, you miss out the part which makes that whole thing, um, combination, work. It's not the relationship between text Interpretation and individual, it's actually the community and the culture which puts text interpretation and individuals in particular relationship to each other. So that individuals cannot interpret completely singularly because they depend on a language which is social. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question boils down to in recent years. Is what is the literal content of the primary text and in which case those literal content are considered to be beyond interpretation hmm. and therefore they must be uh, if they're what is it what is the notion of a text beyond interpretation and in that sense what they would be doing that you would then have the idea that these textual elements beyond interpretation, should construct the essence of Muslim behaviour, conduct and practice and through that Muslim behaviour, conduct and practice, they build what we would call a Muslim Mm. and a Muslim then should be able to relate that conduct, their Muslim being or the Muslim becoming through a non-interpretive element, non-interpretive understandings, Mm -hmm. which go from the primary text. Um, And I think the matter of dispute is really between those who think a non-interpretive literality is possible, and let's call literality what we mean uh, as something that doesn't require interpretation, and those who feel that humans cannot Mm. have access to what is um, non-interpretive or put it more precisely humans which lack ontological privilege of let's say prophethood mm. or or similar cannot but respond to interpretation and therefore literality doesn't have that same significance for them mm.
0: So I would kinda of want to um probe that a bit and kinda of give an example of one of the groups that you mentioned, the ones who believe that we can have a literality. And one of the things that I've seen in my own discussions um uh, with people is that they will say things like, Oh, we can have this certainty and this literality because God has self disclosed certain things. So in the Quran, in the you know, the forty Hadith could see in the names of God himself, that, you know, I am the strong, I am the first, I am the last, I am truth, being my personal favourite one, um, for various reasons. Um, what would you say to that, then, to that defence of the literal position?
1: But there's two elements to it. One is a very simple one, that in the Quran, the divine also um, states that they have not, um, there are things which have been hidden, there are things which have not been disclosed. So it is both an argument for making full disclosure, but also an argument for limitation. So for we do not know all the prophets. We do not know many things. Mm. So there is always that kind of um, uh, lacuna in the possibility of having a complete knowledge.
0: Yeah. So something's just come to my head. There's a, I, I can't remember the verse, chapter. Uh, we have made some ayah clear and some we have hidden. And then obviously, again, those who argue for the literal side will say, oh, look, here, there's some ayah that are clear, but then I guess the response to that would be, well, which ones? And then we get back into interpretation.
1: But there's another thing, and the other risk is this, that if you say that some ayah are clear, and they're clear because they don't require interpretation, you're actually destroying the integrity of the Quran, because then what you're putting together is almost a hierarchy within the quran itself, itself yeah. um and, and i think that becomes problematic partly because it's one of the things that orientalist scholarship is very very keen on so mm-hmm. for example the split between medina and verses Macan, yeah. and the meccan verses etc and seeing one as really universal and others a particular um, also i think it it, it it would complicate lots of things because then you really would be saying there's two qurans rather than one quran there's a quran which is non-literal and then there's a Quran which is open to interpretation. And, and I think that's where the challenge comes into it. And then interpretation would not be a condition of being human, mm. in which case, you know, it goes back to the thing, the difference between, um, in a kind of theological scheme, would be between Farishta, or angels, and humans. It's precisely that humans can make mistakes, humans have to reflect, all of these things. Basically, humans have to cope with interpretations other creatures may not need to deal with interpretation, and in which case, that humanity is not... So the interpretive element is a condition of humanity itself. Um, So that is what the limitation is. So the infinity of uh, of the divine is encapsulated into a finite text, which is constantly trying to point out its infinitude in different ways. And every attempt to... Uh, fix its finitude could be seen as an affront to the notion of the divine itself because you are actually saying the divine itself is a finite thing. thing. And what you do is that, look, as a limited interpretive creature, we cannot grasp infinitude itself. So we make these little concessions, these compromises, but we do them in the knowledge that these are concessions and compromises, born of our finitude, born of our uh, limitedness, rather than the nature of the limitedness of the infinite. Yeah, and, and that is a kind of a degree of humility. If we lose that humility, then I think we are in a very, uh, you know, in a very serious position. So my argument would be this: that even when we say this um, thing, if you want to interpret. Maintain the integrity of the, of the Quran as as a as a unified text, which is polyphonic, which has, speaks and you know does different things, but is ultimately a unified text. Um, there, you can't do that by basically easing interpretation out of everything.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So I want to kind of shift focus from the primary texts now to the texts that have been built around those primary texts throughout the 1400 years of islamic history and i want to ask what relationship does critical muslim studies have with these secondary texts that have built up around the primary texts of islam
1: okay well critical muslim studies doesn't take a position i would argue in a way that let's say many reformists did which would be simply to say that you know we would dispense with the hadith so will dispense with this element and simply fix upon um the primary text of the quran and everything else is is mm. up for grabs kind of thing i think what i would suggest to you is perhaps what critical muslim studies would do is move the position away from just the idea of the text or one text to this kind of um irfan of muslimness this kind of focus on on, on the gnosis of muslimness So what constitutes Muslimness in any particular conjuncture and how is that relationship mediated or sometimes um, derived from or in conversation with these primary texts and other times um, those primary texts are seen to be in a greater state of contestation than others. So if you look through that kind of history Mm. of the um, venture of Islam or the Islamicate in the sense that I would say to you, the Islamic it really p- appears uh, with the absence of the prophet in the sense that that seems to me that we can no longer be as confident as determining what is Islamic without mm. that kind of uh, ontologically privileged sanctioning. Mm. Now there may be, for example, among the Jaffrey who would say, well, that ontology is passed on through the imams, and there may be other yeah. ways of doing that. But even then, there is a kind of there has to be a concession to the primacy of the prophet in relation to most understandings of what we would consider to be part of that kind of family of uh, family um, element that we would um uh, you know relate to the master signifier of islam the what constitutes its variations and things like that, so I think. So, I would want to say that I don't think critical Muslim studies has a position, uh, a determining like a reformist position, which would be to dispense with that. I think its emphasis is slightly different. Um, it's to do with different kinds of engagements. And I think as you know, um, I think there's an attempt to try and find Islamic sources mm. for certain positions. And my kind of point would be, well, what does that actually mean? And if this is just a politics of citation, that's fine. But having a you know a, a, a phrase from the Quran as a preamble mm. may have pedagogic, may have rhetorical, may have persuasive functions, but it doesn't necessarily have carry epistemological weight um, unless you give it epistemological weight. In other words, it's just it doesn't tell you anything more than that, mm. um, and that's about. So I'm not sure that that's the real issue here. Mm, okay. Um.
0: I want to kind of, again, I keep saying this, I kind of change tack to, you mentioned Muslimness as being a, the main kind of category that Critical Muslim Studies looks at. Now, what would you say to the charge that Muslimness allows a kind of secularity in through the back door, where you're basically separating Be. Ba- well, essentially, religion and politics, as it were. What would you say to that charge? Because
1: I wouldn't understand that. I mean, I think the problem with secularity is this: that everyone talks about it, um, but it is a category which is parasitic on a particular notion of religion. Or religion, mm. and I think that Al-Sad's work is really, really critical in this respect. So people quote him, but they don't understand it. That the space of the secular is already determined by the our haunting. By Nasrani uh, theology yeah. which describes this this thing is not um, this is not religious. I'm not sure. Having said that, clearly there is certain things that we would say that, for example, the way that you comport yourself during prayers is different than when you comport yourself when you're eating. So the issue is this: what constitutes all of these things, and what are the limits of that? Rather than thinking of a secular as some sort of residual category that the humans inhabit, mm. I'm not sure it's a particularly helpful one, and I'm not sure what's being smuggled in there, um, unless you have this notion of religion mm. as being something which has a particular domain, which is cut off from everything else. Uh, and I'm not clear that that would make sense. So, for example, people like... Um, you know, Ghazali and things like mm. that, when they're talking about medicine and they're thinking about this may be a good way to treat a patient or, you know, whoever mm. they may be, or whatever practices they may be carrying on there. I think it's, it's Orientalists and contemporary Muslims of different kinds who'd be very, very keen to spot their um, um, secularity there, mm. but I'm not sure they would necessarily see that as secularity in a way. Mm. So the question is that how do you constitute secularity um, other than simply a haunted residue of the Nasrani um, theology.
0: Mm. And then, uh, obviously, if you get... I think, just to kind of... Um, if I'm understanding you correctly, if you get rid of the category of religion, then there can be no secularity, so there's not really anything you're smuggling through the back door, is yeah. that? Well, I'm kind of... Okay, so then, obviously, it becomes the vacuum, But we talked about this
1: um, yeah. before, but if you think, for example, um, the, you know, the translation of the... Um, of deen yeah. into custom or nomus or law, yeah. then the question of secularity doesn't arise. So if you think that um, deen means not religion, yeah. it means custom or it means law or sacred law, then those questions don't arise, arise in the same at way. all. Yeah, you know, I mean
0: they become uh, nonsensical yeah. <laughs> even because you yeah. not you don't know, you're not
1: working within that yeah, conceptual framework. framework. So the idea is that there is something called secular, which is it's also about a totalizing framework. Of, uh, of human existence in practice mm. that basically either we are being religious everything that's not being religious or political or cultural is it occup- what is the space of the secularity? We swim in the sea of secularity but that assumes that we do swim in the sea of secularity mm. and that's only possible because you say that religion is this thing or if you don't have that notion then mm. I don't think these questions arise and I think for most Muslims most of the time that distinction isn't in practice they don't sort of say i am no longer a muslim now i'm doing this Mm. they may say that i am doing something that i wish i wasn't doing yeah which is slightly different Mm. so if muslimness is being a muslim is what is kind of subjectivity is that Mm. and when do you cease to be a muslim and i would say most muslims most of the time would argue they don't cease to be a muslim and as long as you're a muslim then if you want to do a kind of a etymological thing, you are submitting Mm. to Islam. And if you're submitting to Islam in everything you do, whether you eat or you drink or you sleep or whatever, it's the same sort of thing.
0: But then doesn't that open the door to this kind of category of Muslim atheism, which is a bit...
1: No, because again, the category of atheism would depend on the idea that I don't... um, So what would be the notion of atheism? So to be a Muslim, it seems to me that you'd have to be recognised by the ummah Mm. as being someone who is a muslim Mm. and that criteria will obviously shift in places but generally there is a strong element of self-ascription that i am a muslim Mm. and therefore to be i am a muslim a number of commitments follow from that um, and some of them may be more minimal than maximal it varies but to be a muslim and say that i am a muslim who doesn't believe in god seems to be an oxymoron Mm. Now, at the most I can imagine people saying I'm Muslim, but I think of you know, like we said before, I'm a Muslim in my own way, but that's also a problematic term. Yeah. And if you say you're a Muslim and you don't believe in um you don't believe in God, then I don't know how you are a Muslim. Then the only thing you could say you're a Muslim in some sort of sociological sense that you consider yourself part of a community. Mm. But in a sense that's not but that community itself is constituted by the idea of the divine, yeah, and that is. I don't know many Muslims who would open up the possibility there is no god, mm. uh, or certainly not in, in in sort of certainly in orientalist readings of people of Hagarism, they can imagine Muslims to say they don't believe in God, but this is a projection of a certain kind of secularism, etc. It seems to me if you don't believe in God, then in what way are you a Muslim? It's like saying, um, you know, I speak, um, I'm. I feel I speak French but I don't speak French. Mm. Doesn't make you wouldn't say that somebody who's if you say you speak French and you don't speak French, you're kind of like raising doubts about this. Yeah. Um
0: I think we've touched on this before, or just literally just in the past couple of minutes in terms of what we've been talking about, but I want to kind of approach it from a different kind of angle. Um so a common criticism against critical Muslim studies is that there's no space for God. In its thinking, now I want to approach this from a very specific. For
1: I mean, why, do do, you know, <laughs> why does God need? Do t- <laughs> I mean, this puts the whole thing in the wrong approach, wrong, order. wrong order. God doesn't need permission to
0: be <laughs> to be anywhere. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Now so that thing. You know, but the thing is, I want to talk about this in a very kind of um specific sense, and it's in the like historical discursive, mm-hmm. where critical Muslim studies as far as I understand it, puts quite a bit of emphasis on the collective ummah as shaping what Islam is. And then as pushback to that, there's usually the response, well, what about God? Doesn't God talk to human beings anymore? Like through, you know, not revelation, but, you know, through the Sufi mystics and this kind of stuff. Like, do we not have space for that?
1: These Sufi mystics and all these people, they're part of the ummah. So so if they're part of the ummah And they are transmitting Or they think they are transmitting These interpretations etc They are influencing the ummah And those influences are shaping everything So they're basically uh, So it's just the
0: same thing It's the same
1: thing So the idea that we need God As uh, you know separate From the ummah It seems to me is slightly presumptuous uh, Because in a way that you know the, how we understand the divine is through our communities of interpretation and association and disassociation. Hmm. Through that, we don't have... Uh, now, the, the only other way you can do is, that, is then you move towards a very kind of subjectivist notion, uh, almost a kind of, a, um, of an individualistic relationship. Now, we can all say we have individual relationships to the divine, However, those individual relationships still mediated through our community and our uh, conjuncture that we actually inhabit. Um, I can't see how that could not be the case. Now, unless you believe in this kind of atomistic um, Cartesian um, subject Mm. who has no connections with any communal or social relationship, um, and in which case I would wonder what language they speak to when they try and pray to God. I mean, in the sense that, mm. you know, even in that level it's not chronic clear. So I don't see this thing that what about God kind of thing. What they're trying to say is that what if my interpretation of the divine disagrees with the uh, omatic interpretation of divine? And I say, well, what if it does? What do you want?
0: Mm.
1: You know, it depends what it is I mean, you may be able to convince the Ummah And the Ummah may change its mind on this As a collective kind of body Or you may find that the Ummah says You know what, you are crackers and Leave us alone and let us get on with our lives Right And there's something in between all of those possibilities And all of those possibilities have existed in time
0: Right, so I know we had to chat about this earlier (laughs) But this has neatly brought us to the issue of power Mm an interpretation. So I want to kind of just ask the natural question, now we've come to this point, so I was as well ask it, what role does power have in critical Muslim studies vis-a-vis meaning?
1: Well, the role that power has in critical Muslim studies is exactly the role that power has in the consistency and existence of humanity itself. I mean, I don't think there is something that critical Muslim studies, aha, we're giving role of power something else. It is simply a description of what actually is the case. It's not a attempt to try and say, we're gonna give um, you know special privileges and a sort of mm. to power in this way. It's simply a recognition of the historicity of um, various um, constructions of society and communities and subjectivity. So in terms of this power, it really is just a shorthand way of saying sometimes, that if all the possible interpretations of things, this interpretation holds greater sway, mm. it, seems more, it becomes more naturalized, and the process for that naturalization, uh, we can call in a compressed way, power.
0: Mm.
1: So it's not saying, oh, then the argument of it becomes, well, that means power is everything. Well, the point is that, what would be the other of that? Because in a sense what you have is that the, the argument of ultimately is that power is constitutive of social relations, but power itself doesn't always mean that it is not, uh, it is, It is. Um, power is not just prohibitive, it's productive, mm. it's not simply coercive, but it's also building consensus, ultimately power is the uh, construction of subjectivities, and they are done from within power, it's not that power is something that's exercised upon someone else or by someone else, it is actually a kind of process by which um, human humanity has been constantly shaped and reshaped. Um, for example, you know, if you're having a conversation with someone, there is a struggle of power in this, that because you want... The, how we determine who has shaped... who has been doing more of the shaping than being shaped is. Mm-hmm. The shorthand way would be to say, well, that's a difference in power. What does that actually mean? And it can mean something very, very trivial, or it can mean something very, very big. Mm. But that's it. And I don't understand why that er raises um, ethical questions as such, because the argument would be you want some other way of saying that, oh, I don't like to be shaped this way, um, and I want someone to help me. Well, that's fine. But really, there is you know mm. there is nothing there except for that kind of kind of reshaping um and you're hoping to use something that you think is beyond shaping to shape others and um, i don't see you can step as long as you're human you can't really step out of that
0: mm. Mm. okay professor say thank you very much This is an episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast wing of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been Hizamir, and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes, and please leave a like and a rating.